Larry Kamer can stop any rumor. That is a quote from a publication called Corporate Legal Times. And my guest today is that very same Larry Kamer. Larry is a crisis management expert, which means he's the guy people call when the shit hits the fan. His list of clients goes on for pages, but just to name a few, Harvard, Stanford, American Medical Association, Kaiser Permanente, and the Catholic Church. We will talk about that, I promise you. Larry is also an adjunct professor in the professional communication program at the University of San Francisco, the chief information security officer at Carnegie Mellon, and the Annenberg School of Communication at USC. He is a treasure trove of advice, information, and stories. And for me, watching companies and institutions or people, individuals, Watching them get drawn and quartered in the press is kind of, you know, like a fun blood sport to watch from the outside. Larry is the one who jumps in and actually tries to help these companies, institutions, and individuals do the right thing. Personally, I find that stuff fascinating. How do people manage through it? What is going on behind the scenes? And what can we learn from these stories? That is what today's episode is all about. Because here's the thing, we all have a crisis or two behind us and probably a few on the horizon as well. And rather than just blindly manage our way through, wouldn't it be nice to have some sound advice? Wouldn't it be nice to have an expert on our side who can help us think through our best response to a colossal screw up? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Larry Kamer is about to share some riveting stories from behind the scenes, commentary on my personal obsession currently, Theranos, and some words of wisdom to help guide us to higher ground when we inevitably find ourselves or our organizations in the hot seat. Enjoy. My feeling about the work you do, Larry, is that there are the fixers who have a little bit, a lot bit of moral ambiguity, who will do anything to get their clients off, like a sleazy lawyer. But then there's the crisis people that come in and try to help you do the right thing. It's almost like the defense attorney who knows the client might be guilty, but they really believe they deserve a fair trial. Yes. And to me, that's what you are. You're the guy that comes in and tries to make it right. First of all, do you agree with that assessment? (laughs) I do. And and, see, my my approach is that crisis management is about solving problems. Mm. It's not about spin and it's not about diverting people's attention onto other things or pointing the finger of blame at somebody else. Mm -hmm. It's about fixing a problem. And Mm -hmm. so a conversation that I have a lot of times at the beginning of engagements goes something like, you know, don't ask me to communicate your way out of something you've behaved your way into. Ooh. I'm here to help you try and fix a problem. And where I can add value is on the communication side of that. But it's really about getting to the underlying problem and fixing it. Yeah. And how often, like if you had to speak in terms of percentages, what percentage of the people you have that first conversation with are intellectually, emotionally ready to actually talk about the problem? At this point, it's like 90%. 90% already? Yeah, yeah, because, you know, I've just been at this for a while now, yeah. and I'm getting calls from pretty sophisticated people. I mm-hmm. get referrals from from lawyers and other, other clients, and, you know, they know that, that when I come in or somebody like me comes in, it's to help them fix a problem. Yeah. It's not to spin their way out of it. I mean, we see so many things in the headlines with Theranos, which I want to talk about, sure. and the college admission scandal and things like that. There's so much out there showing us that people are sleazy and bad and behave badly. But it sounds like 90% of the people you work with really do want to do the right thing. Uh, yeah, that's true. You know, it's funny, we were just using Theranos as a mm-hmm. case study in my, my crisis class uh, University of San Francisco last night. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm dying to talk about that because I cannot get enough of that stuff. <laughs> I can't. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the Jennifer Lawrence movie. She's perfect. It's like all the reporting that's been done, you know, the documentaries and everything else. It's just the same stuff over and over again. But there's something about it. Yeah, you can't take your eyes off it. We're going to talk about Theranos right now because we just have to, because I did PR for 17 years. Tech PR for like 10 of those years, maybe more. It was more like 15 of those years. And reporters would not believe a startup story. Right. 
unless they had customers to speak to them. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times I pitched Fortune, Forbes, Business Week back in the day, New York Times. It was its law. Reporters don't buy that bullshit mm -hmm. unless there's a customer willing to talk. How did she get around that? How did she do it? Well, I think part of it is just the spectacular amount of, call it self-delusion or sociopathy or yeah, whatever, yeah. you know, that, that I think she really did believe that she was going to do what she said she was going to do. I don't think she looked at herself and said, I am telling a colossal P.T. Barnum-like lie and fleecing, you know, lots and lots of people. You know, even Bernie Madoff had himself convinced that he was doing a favor, you know, mm. for, for all the people who put money in there. I didn't know that. In her case, all men, you know, all men around her, all older men, very few with scientific or medical background. Yeah. I think there was some allure about this, you know, this young woman and her story. I think some of it, and maybe this is going beyond, but I mean, I think some of it was sexual. Yeah. You yeah. know? And so... They were attracted to her. They were, you know, these She was 80, the perfect woman. 80, 90-year-old guys who yeah. think, you know, that they're going to miss out on something and they're going to make a billion dollars mm -hmm. with her. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the way people like Schultz and Kissinger talked about her in these... Mm. you know, saintly terms, you know, that she was going to be, you know, saving the world. Yeah. And come on, she had a, she had a tech startup. She left Stanford at 19. Yeah. I mean, think about what we knew at 19. Yeah, You exactly. could fit it on the head of a needle. Well, what I knew and, at 19. and of course, you know, when they talked to the scientists and the doctors at Stanford, this mm -hmm. Dr. Gardner, for example, mm -hmm. who knew her and said, what you're talking about is admirable, but it is literally impossible. You cannot do this. So quit trying to sell people on the idea. You know, this whole fake it till you make it. Yeah, yeah. Right? It reminded me of that quote where I think it was the it was the MD at Stanford who had called bullshit early. Yeah, which I think we were talking to the same Gardner, person. Yeah, Dr. Gardner. Anyway, she said, look, I really want time travel to be a thing. Yeah. Like, I so badly want and it. And I want this young woman to yes. be successful. Yes. In a, in a very male-dominated world. But Absolutely. it's not true. It's right. just not true. So, okay. Let's pretend like Theranos calls you up in the early days and says, Larry, we got a problem and we're only willing to admit that we're just a little behind schedule. What would you do? What's your next play? You know, I think I'm at the point in my life where I probably wouldn't take it. The danger Will Robinson signs, you know, would be would be up all over the place. And what are those signs? Like, what are the what are the like flashing intuition? Like, yikes, this is bad. Where the client knows what to say or thinks they know what to say, usually advised by counsel before they even hear your advice, where you're being hired essentially as a as a waiter. You're an order taker. I want you to take these words that I'm saying. And I want you to deliver them. And it doesn't work. I mean, my job is to be at the table with all those people, ask some pretty tough questions that mm -hmm. I know they're going to get, mm -hmm. see what they're, what they're willing to say, have them be honest about why they can't say certain things, and have them be honest about their vulnerabilities. Mm. If we can't have that conversation, I can't really help them. And so if somebody comes along, and Theranos was a very lawyer-driven PR response. I it mean, was kind of like the Scientologists, how they yeah, go after people that very, speak very, out. Very Theranos's legal team strategy seemed to like take a page out of Scientology. Very, right, very heavy-handed, very yes. threatening. You know, like ruin your life level. Right. Shit. Right, and yeah. and that starts from the top. Yeah, so, yeah. as much as you know, we want to have this. A heroic view of Elizabeth Holmes, I mean, that started with her, mm -hmm. right? Th those lawyers didn't do it without being instructed by her and, and, and Balwani. Yeah. So I don't think the conversation would go would go would very go too well. far. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, she needed order takers. So okay, but let's pretend like you're not dealing with a Theranos. Let's pretend like you're dealing with I don't know, USC yeah. or Yale or Stanford. Yeah. And your name is all over the press for all the wrong reasons because it turns out you've been letting a bunch of people in that you shouldn't have. You're willing to play ball. What happens? You ask the hard questions. You, you get to the heart of the problem. And is there like a, not a formula, but is there a playbook for getting yourself back on track and fixing a damaged reputation? So it's interesting. I've watched the college scandal. I used to teach at USC, mm. and I used to teach crisis management at USC, oh, which is, which so, is so ironic, right? <laughs> and 
they've just they just can't get out of their own way. Oh no! You know, between the the gynecologist scandal and I missed that. What oh, happened with the gynecologist scandal? There was a gynecologist in the student health service there that was abusing, like it turns out, hundreds of women, you know, doing very improper things, taking their pictures and that oh, kind of stuff. My. Yeah, and there were warning signs about him that were ignored. It is what ultimately was the the coup de grace for the last president of the college was this thing got out of control. But between that and athletic stuff and now with this, you know, these admissions, the pay-for-play admission stuff, USC, it's another story I can't get enough of. One, because I know Mm. the institution a little bit, and I think it's a great institution. Yeah, Annenberg School, where I used to teach, Mm -hmm. that's a great, great program. Mm -hmm. But... Somehow they're not solving their problem. They're not. And what, what would you characterize is the problem, Larry? Like, is it? Can you say? Well, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. So both USC and Yale, immediately after the Varsity Blues thing broke, issued statements from their president. You know, from the very highest office, saying. We're victims in this situation. Oh God, I'm allergic to anything that sounds like a victim. We're victims. We all are. And this is problematic for two reasons. One, because if your people are taking bribes, you're not a victim. <laughs> that's, that's not how victimhood works. Right. And secondly, it's very, very dangerous in the early going of a, as a crisis is unrolling to make declarative statements as if you know what's going on. Mm. You don't know what's going on. You do not know enough at that point to say we're victims here. And so- Why do they think they do? Is it ego? Is it like a quick snap judgment makes me feel better? What is it? I think, and we'll get into this when we start talking about apologizing, but I think people feel like if they just say certain words, the controversy goes away. (laughs) As if there's like a magic formula. (laughs) Like, oh, you're victims? Okay, you know, like a good reporter is going to say, oh, well, they're victims. I'm I'm not going to, these poor guys, I'm not going to bother asking them any more tough questions. Reporter smells a victim narrative and they go in for the jugular. Especially when you are claiming victimhood as the, you know, as one of the world's richest, most prestigious private universities. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And and it's just, it's one of the reasons why in the early moments of a crisis, it's really tricky. Yeah. Because you rarely have enough information to tell a satisfying story. So you have to have a lot of other information at the ready to tell a complete story. Right, because that machine needs to be fed with something. The vacuum right. must be filled. Right. So what do you do? It, does that mean that the early days of communication are simply a statement of fact of what is known? Here's what is known. I can't tell you X and Y, Z, but I can tell you A and B. You can do even more than that. And mm. this is why, you know, when you paint a room... Ninety percent of the work is the preparation ahead of time, right? It's it's, it's it's all the stuff before you put on the paint. Yeah, it's the same thing here in terms of making sure you have good data and good statements that you can talk about that are approved and ready to go. If you're having an incident, a disaster, an emergency, you can talk about what your emergency response protocols are. Yeah. If you're working with law enforcement, you can talk about that. If you're if you shut down people's accounts because they're being hacked, you can talk about that. Mm-hmm. You can talk about a lot of things, mm-hmm. even while you don't have all the answers. And not only, and this is the thing that I used to always counsel clients, is it's not just the things that get talked about, it's the tone. And it's the messenger. And yeah. it's, you know, if people are used to hearing from, you know, a popular sports star, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're hearing from the company's lawyer, uh, you know, in a crisis, there's a disconnect there. Yeah. So tone's important. Messenger's important. Timing is obviously important. Yeah. And and one of the first things I ever learned in this business was somebody at one of my big clients said, you know, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. That's right. So your oh, empathy so good. and presence is really important too. And I remember this was years ago, and may he rest in peace. It's a Steve Jobs story. But I remember he was, I want to say he was at like All Things D conference, and he was asked about the suicides mm. at the Foxconn Fox factory. Con. Remember yeah, that? Okay. So we use it as a case study in my class. Oh, God, I want to know what you think about yeah. this. So he's on stage, and he gets asked about Foxconn and the suicides. And his first answer I thought was really strong. It was, listen, I want you all to know we are all over this. People are working day and night, gathering, and I don't even remember the words, but the emotional imprint is, we're all over this, we're taking this really fucking seriously. And he's the guy who can get away with that, right? And, the, 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 yeah, buck the buck stops with him. The buck stops with me he and we're taking it's this seriously. Happen. It's gonna It'll happen. happen. Right. 
But the next thing he says is, but actually... They're not our employees. They're, A, they're not our employees, and the numbers aren't that huge. Yeah. In fact, it reminds me of the Catholic Church's response to a lot of the early days of the sexual abuse news that came out. They would say, yes, but it's such a tiny percentage of priests. And any of us who know victims, which is pretty much all of us, it turns out... Only takes one. One is too many. Yeah. One is too many. Well, this is like uh, during the early days of the BP Gulf of Mexico spill. Oh, God. Among the many regrettable statements that the company made was that the proportion of oil relative to the size of the water was pretty small. You know, and that it would ultimately get diluted and washed out to sea. Well, that may be true. This is another challenge you come up against when you're working with people who are especially like engineers yeah. for whom the world is a very linear place. It is true or false. It's true or false. Yeah. And yeah, that may be true, but you should never, ever in a million years say that. Ever. Because <laughs> right. it's precious. It, one drop is too much. That's right. I do remember I was an environmental science major for like a second in college because that's what all the cute boys were. So that was my decision process in those days. But I remember very specifically our environmental science teacher saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. Dilution, yeah. And as in my 40s, or I guess I was in my 30s when BP happened, I can't remember. And I remember, I remember hearing that professor's voice, and I was like, is that still conventional wisdom? Because that sounds terrible. It's dumb conventional wisdom. Yeah. You know, and even if that's the science, are you really going to tell you people that no. nature will take care of the problem that I caused? That's it. And the devastation and all that. So right. let me ask you this. What is the story that you always tell at cocktail parties? Like, what's your favorite crisis story that you're allowed to tell or you can change the industry or change gen? Do whatever you got to do, but I want to hear a good story. So I'll tell you one that we were involved in, and now it's a long time ago. It was in the early 90s, but it was a, a really terrible crisis that had a positive ending. Mm. It was the case of a hospital where a woman walked in. Young mom is there with her baby. The mom is 16. Oh, God. This woman walks into her room, poses as a public health worker, asks the, the girl, the young woman, to turn over the baby so she can take her down the hallway for, for tests and to have her wait. And she walks out of the hospital with her. She kidnapped her. Oh, my God. And now <laughs> my daughter had been born in that very same hospital like two months before. So oh I was my God. really familiar. Both my kids were born at this hospital. So we were really familiar with everything, the geography, the people, and everything else. There were a, a systemic security failures. Cameras were not working. People were looking at a woman walking down the hallway with a baby in her arms, which you never see in a hospital. Babies are always in a bassinet, or if mom has the baby in her arms, she's in a wheelchair, right, going out of the so hospital. So that's a telltale sign. Somebody should not be walking around with a baby in their arms. And people saw it, and they didn't you know, flag it. She walks out the door and the baby's gone for, oh, and ultimately for a few months. Oh my God, that poor woman. So, you know, when we get called in, the response of the hospital quite understandably was, we need you guys to help us convince people that this is a great place to have a baby. <laughs> and I'm like, that's, <laughs> I don't think so. I and mean, you've just proven the opposite. And we came back and said to them, no, what you need to do is run a campaign to get the baby back. God, amen. How could they, like, that's so heartless. I mean, I well, know, I, I think get it, but. It, you know, I can't blame them. It was people who really wanted to do something. Yeah. I think at that point, there were like 5,000 babies a year being born at this hospital. It's a big wow. baby hospital. It's a wow. huge part of their business. And we said, no, you know, you have to focus the attention on the real issue at hand. And that's not covering your butt. No, it's, it's reuniting these people. And using your your media power, your economic power, you know, your trust in the community. Long story short, we put a campaign together with the FBI and wow. with the with the police and we opened up a tip line. And and the problem with this was that, you know, in crisis management, you don't want to talk about the bad news for too long. Right. But when you're dealing with a kidnapping case, the trail goes cold unless it's kept in the news. Wow, so that's kind of an interesting rub. We had to keep the fact that there was this kidnapped baby in the news, and we had to find hooks for, you know, so we would have a pediatrician come out and say, okay, well, now the baby is one week old, and the baby will be needing these things. So if you know where this baby is, or if you have this baby, please remember it needs this kind of nutrition. Or God, this that's so smart. 
So, well, that was, I can't take all the credit for that. I mean, there's a lot of smart people at this place. Yeah. Fast forward three months, we get tip number like 1500 on the tip line. And it turns out to be, there's a woman in this apartment building who has come home with a baby. She wasn't pregnant. Oh, Jesus. She wasn't out buying baby stuff. And somebody thought that was a little odd, called the cops. It was they her. found her. It oh was her. my God. Yeah. And I was in the room when they reunited this baby with her mom. And it was what was just, that like? It was unbelievable, you know, because I wouldn't have expected that day to have ever happened. Oh, that rarely happens, right? Well, it's stranger infant abductions it's so rare are to really with. rare, and stranger infant abductions from hospitals are almost unheard of. Now they're almost impossible because of all the security. And the cameras. Security cameras, you know, they put chips in the baby's diapers, you know, so they set off alarms if the, somebody takes them out of the nursery in an unauthorized way. They have all kinds of all kinds of security now. That's crazy. Code pink, which was not in existence then, but that's an infant abduction. And if you hear a code pink in a hospital. I remember I used to volunteer at O'Connor Hospital doing hospice, like yeah. bringing communion to the, because I'm a good Catholic girl. Yeah. I bring communion to the people that were sick. And, you know, they trained us what a code pink was. And I was like a new mother. And the, the thought makes me sick. Oh, it's the scariest thing. I mean, we were freaked out about it personally because, like I said, we had a, a you know, our daughter, this happened in June. Our daughter was born in February, mm-hmm. same place. Mm-hmm. And it's like there by the grace of God, you know. Well, so that actually brings up another question. So that's a really, that's close to home. Shifting to a different category mm-hmm. in the wake of Me Too, mm-hmm. if somebody came to me and said, gee, I need help rehabbing my image because back in the day, I was just a a regular average douchebag like everybody was, Mm -hmm. and I need help rehabbing. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to take that on. Not that I would get that call because I got my own Me Too story. Plus, if you're an ancient douchebag and you haven't done the work, you're still, you know what I mean? Like, how do you decide if you're too close and too emotionally involved to be an effective counselor? If they're asking me to whitewash the behavior of a creep, I, I just won't do it. You know, I'm like old enough now where I where I can just say, you know, there's no upside for me doing no that No amount work. of money is worth it. Yeah. And they don't usually come around offering you tens of millions of dollars. You yeah. know, it's so, yeah. that's usually not a, 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 you know, there's not a big moral dilemma there. <laughs> um which but helps. I have had I have had some Me Too cases, mm. and I can think of one case where the guy admitted to being a jerk and admitted to a lot of bad and creepy behavior. But he was likewise, I was convinced he was as committed to making that situation right. Well, that's great. Fixing himself. Yeah, that's fixing that's his business. Stuff. You know, doing things like bringing restorative justice circles mm. to the to the women who came forward. Wow! So they could feel like there was some sense of closure or some sense of they're being heard. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while, and I, this is, I think, you know, undiscovered territory is as these Me Too problems become more commonplace. How do we fix the damage? Lots and lots of innocent people. I mean, certainly the women who come forward who have been victimized or, you know, feel that they've been um, hurt in one way or another, Mm -hmm. that we're obviously paying a lot of attention to. But look at Weinstein, right? So lots and lots and lots of people in that company lost their jobs who probably had nothing to do. You know, people are answering the phone or couriers, right? Um, yeah, there were probably a lot of people in that company who were his enablers, because mm. how does something like that go on? Well, it was part of the culture. Yeah. And you didn't even know you were enabling, because yeah. it's just what happens. Yeah, you just kind of send somebody up to his hotel room. Right? Yeah. So, But to me, there's a real interesting piece of work, I think, to be done on how do you repair the damage? Because mm. a lot of these institutions, employers, mm-hmm. or they're beloved in their communities, mm-hmm. or you know they've got some they've got some claim to fame they're famous and important for a reason right in, and in spite of the creepy behavior of you know the guys who are running the place so how do you close the loop how do you bring justice how do you fix actually fix the problem versus burning the whole thing down yeah yeah well that leads us to a discussion of the catholic church yes and if Amen. i if i have this right you are working with the Catholic Church right now. You're on record as working with the Catholic Church. Right. Yet you are not yourself Catholic. No. Which I think might be a good thing 
Do you feel like that helps you? Well, it's funny. We joke all the time about this because my first work with the Catholic Church was the San Francisco Archdiocese. Mm. And the San Francisco Archdiocese has a very conservative archbishop who I got along with just fine. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I went to work over there, we agreed to disagree on pretty much everything. (laughs) Homosexuality, abortion. You know, I said, even Jesus Christ we don't agree on. So (laughs) if we can just... You know, if we can just start with that, that the whole son of God thing, you know, I'm Jewish, so I don't, I don't, we don't have that, even though he was Jewish. He um, was Jewish? Jesus. Oh, I thought you meant the bishop. No, I was no, like, no, no, what? no. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. 100%. So, That's um, hilarious. But I think they wanted outside counsel from somebody who wasn't afraid to give it to them yeah. and who wasn't, you know, brought up in that doctrine and that hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, all right, so I get fired. Yeah, I'm know? not impressed by the by the titles. I don't none of it means anything now, to me. On the other hand, I think the church, you know, I see the good side of the church. And this is a big part of our challenge is, you yeah. know, they will call themselves the largest charity in the world. Mm. They do some amazing things. And I have a lot of respect for people who are genuinely religious people. I agree. People of faith. And yeah. I don't care what that faith yeah. is. Yeah, I feel the same way. And there's a lot of people in the diocese and archdiocese, these parishioners who are just coming in every day, who are you know giving a little bit of money, who are coming to church, who are sending their kids to the schools. They're not part of this problem. No. And so you have to think about them. Yeah. And yeah, so. I, I, to me, right now, it's a terribly hard time to be a Catholic. We were just talking about this in the elevator, right. because to me, there's like the two issues. There's the system of secrecy that you know I, I'm not going to speculate about Oakland because I know nothing about it, and maybe I have to take that out. I don't know if that's no, no, no. Okay, I, okay. No. I'm not going to speculate about these individual parishes, but it seems that one of the common themes is a systemic hide and move strategy, and. I've been close to it. I see the system that's so sick and broken that ruined lives. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the Catholic Church is a part of my identity. Mm -hmm. It has nourished me for a lot of my life. I'm also completely opposed to their position on Mm -hmm. gay rights. I mean, we go down the list. I'm down with Jesus. Right, but abortion, gay marriage. It's just so much more complex than the church ever led on. Contraception. Hello. (laughs) Right. And my son is going through First Communion right now, and we're having to confront a lot of these doctrinal bumps in the road. But to me, where the church has an opportunity... It's like, you know how the most honest, delicious spiritual conversations are happening at AA meetings, mm-hmm. right? Because everybody's dead honest. Mm-hmm. I fucked up this. I ruined this. I almost killed someone. Right. My kids will never speak to me again. And because it's so honest, it's holy. Mm-hmm. My church does not seem willing to get real honest. And from the pulpit say, you guys, we can't take a moral high ground anymore. So instead, what we're going to do is make this the honest place where we can get nourished at the table, where we can do what we need to do. But I am not going to pretend that I am on a high horse because they've lost that, Larry. Like they have no moral high ground to me anymore. So some of this is, you know, is instant Mm. problems that are very complicated problems that have to be dealt with. You know, anytime there's abuse, you know, at the hands of a priest or or an employee, you know, as you said, one time is is too many. You can't you can't put it in context. You You can't can't make it better. You can't make it better. Yeah. But you know, they have some real root cause problems, whether it's all male clerics, whether it's no marriage, whether it's celibacy. I mean, I leave this to people who actually know what they're talking about. But, you know, as somebody who looks at root causes of problems, to me, that's, you know, that's what they're going to have to do. And, and you said it yourself. There has been a culture. Mm. I helped the Oakland Diocese announce a list of, of priests that were being uh, investigated a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And that process is really complicated. Because the records don't always exist. Some of these cases are going back into the 1960s. Oh, yeah. You have in a, fact, I feel like the lion's share of names, at least in my diocese that were released, the majority were pre-1980, I would say. Right, right. And they get sparser, but I don't know if that's Well, the, record, the I mean, records you know. aren't there. A lot of times it was done on a handshake or, you know, somebody would say to somebody, hey, he's a good guy, you mm. know. The standard's obviously very, very different. And then when do you involve law enforcement? And then when do you make it public? And 
in many of these cases, the sad reality is a lot of victims don't want to talk about it. Of course. Because it's embarrassing, it's humiliating. humiliating. You know, they put it in a box in their they lives. They want to get on with their lives, they yeah. Get on, I mean, you know, they didn't ask for this kind of horrible thing to happen to them. So it, it, there are a lot of reasons why it's not a straightforward proposition. But in the Oakland case, I give them a lot of credit because, mm. uh, for one thing, they have a, a, a civilian, not a priest, leading this whole investigation. Thank God. They have an FBI agent who, you know, ex-FBI agent, who does these priest investigations for a living now, and she's no BS. I love that there's a woman in there there has to getting be. her done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? So you got their Jewish PR guy. Yeah, I you love got it. the civilian. Sounds like right, Oakland's doing it yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's, you know, as a friend of mine in the church said when I first started working for them, they said, you know, it, it took us a few thousand years to recognize Galileo, right? So <laughs> nothing happens, nothing happens fast, True. you know, in, in the church. And there's this mindset that, you know, if it gets fixed in 500 years, you know, then it has to get fixed in 500 years. Wow. And I, I just can't. That's, that's like geological time perspective. I know. That's a trip. I hadn't quite yeah. thought of it that way. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did notice, too, the latest scandal that I just read about this week. It's law enforcement that's handling it. That's right. Which I'm like, well, this is great. Yeah. This is what I've always wanted. Why is this a church decision? It's law enforcement. Well, I think they deferred a lot of this historically. Law enforcement either didn't want to deal with it. These are pretty... They're powerful people. And it, they're powerful people. They're, they're These are crimes that were... You know, so socially unacceptable to talk about. Uh, I'm sure they didn't want to mess with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And if the church said, you know, or an organization says we're going to handle it, you then hand it back over. You hand it back over. Plus, you know, back in those days, in the '60s and '70s, you know, these cases had to be pretty egregious. Yeah. You know, for, to for police to you know to actually want to get inside and you know arrest a priest. You know, it's unheard of in a lot or of communities. Or the sisters. God, the stories in Ireland are just yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. So that actually leads me, and I'm not suggesting that an apology is the strategy, but it leads me to want to ask you about apologizing. There right. is an art, and there is a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And I, <laughs> I want to hear how you would characterize each. Okay. So here's, here's what we know about about apologies. And when mm-hmm. I'm talking about apologies, I'm not talking about, you know, I cut you off in traffic and I and I apologize when I see you at the traffic light. These are more in the corporate institutional world. Yeah. So what we know about them is, one, most of them suck. <laughs> most of them are really ineffective. Um, two, they're done for the wrong reasons. Mm. They're done for the same reasons that you and I, when we were five years old, if we broke something to moms, would immediately apologize for it. Uh, Because why? Because we wanted mom to go away. And we didn't want to get in trouble. We didn't want to get in trouble. It's a CYA move. Right. Right, it's cover your ass. That's right. And the third thing is most of these apologies are not strategic. I look at an apology as an important piece, high stakes communication that has to be strategic. You know, just like an earnings report. Yeah. You know, yeah. just like the rollout of a new product. That's right. You have to have a strategy behind it. And there's a million questions that go into that strategy. Are you in the right or are you in the wrong? Yeah. We've seen plenty of cases where people who were not at fault ultimately had to apologize for something that happened to their customers. Yeah. Is it going to increase or decrease my legal exposure? Is it going to. That always. That right there is the crux, because a lot of times I'm like, God, why aren't they just saying? And it's like, well, they can't. How do you navigate that when you know that X has to happen, but legally, if you own X, that means you open yourself to lawsuits It's a mistake to have a communications hierarchy where the lawyers can veto everything. You have to have good crisis planning means you have these conversations ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And the lawyers are there at the table because their point of view is extremely important. Oh, yeah. But they work at a different pace. They work under different rules. And they look for different outcomes than those of us who are in the reputation business. Right. Right. I had a matter one time. I'm in New York. Uh, this was a case where uh, a consumer product company and somebody died. A child died because of one of their products. Oh. And, I mean, really a horrible, horrible situation. And, you know, we're going back and forth about the strategy and the lawyers are doing what lawyers do, which is asserting that their needs are the greatest. And this guy actually looked at me and he said, hey, look, 
I'm here to keep these guys out of jail. What are you here for? Oh, God. And I said, well, I'm here to make sure that after this thing's done, that they can go back out on the world with reputation and trust intact. So you tell me which is more valuable. Oh, it's not an either or. It, no, that's why you all. That's why <laughs> you have to have security and. there and marketing there yeah. and, and HR and all the all the component parts because if if it's just a PR driven decision, it's going to be too spin oriented, too it's clever. Be Theranos, basically. Exactly. <laughs> if it's too legal, then people are going to see right through that that you're in an ass covering exercise, and that's more important to you than coming to the aid of people who you've hurt or who are, you know, whose data has been breached or, mm. you know, something like that. Mm. It, it has to be a blend. And that blend doesn't come in real time. It has to, you have to do that ahead of time. Yeah. Actually, and just to a slight side note here, I feel like if there's a pie chart of crises that are in the news cycle, an ever-growing slice is data breach. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's it used to be alarming. Now it's really alarming. Or it's not alarming because we're we're just dead. We're to getting it. dead into it. That's exactly right. Is the strategy for coping with a data breach different inherently from like a somebody got sick and died because they took a tampered aspirin? Is it different? <sighs> yes and no. So I think about this a lot because I I teach crisis management at Carnegie Mellon University in their program for chief information security officers. Oh, wow. They do a certification program for CISOs, and it's a really, really good program. And when I go back there, you know, I have rooms full of these incredibly powerful information technology, information security people. You know, you look around the room, and there's a guy who's running information security for the U.S. Department of Justice or for MasterCard or, right? Yeah. And so these guys know a lot, but what they don't know is when when these things begin to get into the headlines, into the world of politics, interest groups, and they're feeling the pressure. You know, they are extremely accomplished IT information security people, but they know they live in the real world. Yeah. And so what I'm there to try and help them do is look, you may not be the frontline media spokesperson, but your organization is putting forth a collective effort to deal with malware, denial of service, ransomware, Mm -hmm. data breach, whatever it is. And you got to take the big view because you're a really important actor here. And by the way, most of you guys don't speak English. I mean, yes, you speak English, but you speak tech. and Acronyms and whatever. Right. And a big part of our world is, you know, talking to people in the language that is going to be most effective, Mm -hmm. that they're used to hearing Mm. In, in getting information to them where they already are. You know, you can't say, we had a data breach. If you want more information, go to our website and we'll where tell there's you like there. reams and reams of nonsense that nobody has time Or legalese disclosures. Or legalese, yeah, yeah. So data breaches are interesting because I still feel like this situation is not going to change until people take more responsibility for their own data. God, I'm so glad you said that. Yeah. I personally have been in denial about that. All of us have. And my assistant the other day was like, we have got to clean you up. Yeah. We really do. You're acting like a child with yeah. the way you've set yourself up. And we went through this whole process, and now I'm like, I'm a vault now. <laughs> but um, You're data woke. I am, I am data woke. <laughs> Hashtag data woke. But I am curious to know, is there a movement in your community to be like, okay, yes, we got to apologize. We got to show what we're doing. But we also, like, is there a plan to make us all more data woke? Boy, it, it, you know, there's, there's this theory that there has to be a kind of September 11th of a data breach, you know, for it to, to, for it to really hit home. As if PRISM, remember that when the government was spying on us? And yeah. As if that wasn't enough. <laughs> well, you have in the UK, for example, you know, you had hackers get into the National Health System database and, and shut it down basically for several days. It wasn't working. And people died. I mean, oh my God, I did not know that. How people did I miss died. That? So cyber, so we have to start looking at these cybersecurity attacks not as some technical, you know, thing that resides in somebody else's world. These are life or death attacks, right? These are things that will certainly cost a lot of money, but when we start casting them as things where people can die, yeah, maybe then we start thinking a little more differently about about it. The other thing that one of my students was talking about when I was in Pittsburgh a few weeks ago, is if you are in the, in the medical world and someone dies, you know, unexpectedly, they get all over that 
yeah, and want to figure out why. It's right. not like it's not like they can they can go back and make it not happen. Mm-hmm. But they study it and they peer review it and they publish on it and they learn lessons and they change protocols and all that. And his point was we don't have anything like that in the cybersecurity world. Wow. You know, where every time there's a breach, there's like a serious industry-wide professional examination, examination on what happened what do we do to mitigate you know, the damage or the likelihood of it happening again? How do we communicate this so more people will learn from it? And is that because it, it tends to stem from a cover your ass mentality and because you're in CYA mode, you're not thinking about the broader issue and how you might as a community like make sure it doesn't happen again? Or what do you attribute that to? There's a lot of actors. You know, there's a lot of actors in the cybersecurity world. You, know, you have just hundreds and hundreds of vendors you know, selling patches to other people's products. Right. You know, it has not become a priority of government actors. And, you know, I mean, you you can see... Which is kind of shocking. Well, but you can see every time there's a hearing on Facebook or something, just how lame a lot of these guys are. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. Right? If they can't tell the difference between an iPhone and Facebook... Oh, my God. How in the world can we expect them to, you know, to be doing progressive policy on cybersecurity, especially when we have very sophisticated bad guys? Like, oh, like China. Yeah. You know, China hacking private companies, the People's Liberation Army hacking Coca-Cola, right? They're doing it for, for a reason. And we, for some reason, want to make this somebody else's responsibility. Yeah, we do. And those Senate hearings are such friggin' the I mean, they've always been theater. But then when it's like a, a, a data breach or a Facebook, you just realize how out of their depth these people are. I know. They should. You just <laughs> like, like, dude, stop talking. Just stop talking. Don't ask that. Really. Let I know what you're going to ask. somebody else handle it. Don't ask that question. Okay. So back to the art of the apology. Yes. We've just deconstructed. A bad apology sucks because it's a CYA move and it's for all the wrong reasons. Give us the anatomy of a good apology. And, and does it also extend to like personal relationships? Like is the blueprint the same? Larry? Well, that's a really interesting <laughs> question. Uh, and I get this a lot. You know, when you're when you're teaching graduate students like in their 20s, you know, this is a complicated time in life and people have got financial and work and relationship yeah. issues and so we you know, I start talking about apologies and they immediately relate it to their own, you know, to their own lives. Cuz it's so vivid and up close and personal, yeah. So, you know, what makes a good apology or god forbid a perfect apology? The first is that you have to acknowledge your role in that situation. It doesn't mean it's your fault, but you have to take some responsibility. Yeah. And people get tripped up on this a lot because they confuse responsibility with blame and fault. Oh, so true. Why do they do that? Why do we confuse I think, responsibility and blame and fault? I think a lot of it has to do with you know things like risk and insurance yeah. and, and legal liability and that sort of thing, which are very tangible. And, and those people are real. Get those. That's right. They are real. But on the other hand, you think about the example I use is, you know, somebody leaves a flaming bag of dog crap on your front porch <laughs> and you come out there and you're going to look at it because you didn't, it's not my fault that it's here. No, you're going to get rid of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So at it's some a natural point, impulse. you have to step up and you have to take responsibility. That's the most important thing. It's like, you know what? We didn't ask for this terrible situation, but we own it. We're going to fix it. The second thing is you have to acknowledge that damage has been done Mm. and not make fun of it, not mock people who feel that they've been hurt or harassed or insulted or, you know, racially profiled or whatever it is. So you have to acknowledge that that's a real thing. Now, can I ask you, because some people think that to acknowledge that damage has been done, they use these, they use phrases like, I'm sorry if they felt wronged by anything I may have done or said. Right. That is not the same thing. That's Can you a, talk about sure. for those who may have felt as if that language? Yeah, weasel. Those are weasel apologies. Those are weasel apologies, Larry. Thank you. They're, Husband, if you're listening, we had a fight about this. <laughs> Last night we were fighting about what's a real apology, and he was like, what? Yeah. There was a great example I use in my class where John Kerry, when he was the Secretary of uh, State, gave a speech, and he talked about how, and I'm paraphrasing, mm. that, you know, if you if you work hard and you go to school and you advance yourself in life, you know, you'll do very well. If you don't, you wind up in Afghanistan, <gasps> which Ouch. a lot of people took as a real slap to the military. Yeah. And, and he's a military guy. The guy, what, he, he did that kind of tour of duty, but exactly. Vietnam, right? And his apology was, 
oh, I'm sorry if, you know, if, if people were offended by what I said. Oh, see that? Oh! And there's too many ifs in there. So one of the keys to a perfect apology is you acknowledge the, the, the hurt that's been done and you speak to that. Mm. You don't weasel word around it. You don't um, commit halfway. Mm. And there are ways of doing it, even if you don't know whose fault it is, even if you don't know who's, who's to blame. The other reality is, in this day and age, there has to be, well, a couple other things. Mm-hmm. One, your commitment that you're going to fix this so it doesn't happen again. You're going to make it right, yep. And the make it right part usually involves money. Mm. I mean, I hate to say it, but there's usually a a payment that has to be made to somebody or – because people – why do people sue when they feel aggrieved? Because money – It has energy. It's, it's It means something. Yeah. It's tangible. It's reparations. And, and it and hurts you, right? Yeah, and, yeah. So if it, it's not seen as really costing you something, I think the apology is incomplete, too. Yeah. Okay, so here's a question. I haven't seen the documentary on Michael Jackson. I did. You did. Yeah, painful. I heard Oprah did an hour-long yeah. interview with the, the folks from the movie and everything. And one of the, the ways that they're depositioning the one of the victims, or survivors, I should say, is they're saying, if you really cared, if you were really trying to you know come out and do the right thing, you wouldn't be asking for money. Yeah. Why are you asking for money? And I can't remember what his exact answer was, but he said, we have a system, right. and that system is set up to do certain things. And when you bring forward something this major, if there's not money attached to it, the system doesn't really recognize it. And a lot of times, you know, that's a proxy for, I want you to apologize. Yes. I want you to acknowledge you did something bad. I want you to acknowledge me as a person. I want you to see me. Yeah, I yeah. want you to see me. And no, of course money is, you know, filthy lucre and all that. It's yeah. not a substitute. But, you know, I would ask these these questioners, what was this guy supposed to have done? Exactly. What was he supposed to have done? Right. And so when they ask, you know, victims of, of molestation or sexual harassment, why didn't you speak up earlier? Why are you only coming forward now? You know, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the psychology of the imprint those events leave That's with right. people. That's exactly right. And, you know, I worked on a case with a university where there was this guy, he's a, he was a bad guy. He sexually, he took advantage of, of a lot of women, mm. you know, who were who were either drunk or, you know, they were lonely or whatever it they was. They were compromised in some way. They were compromised in some way. Mm-hmm. And the problem was, where's the police reports? Well, th- these women didn't want to relive that yeah. situation. They also, made you don't dumb... want to admit... It, my friend, Naomi, if you're listening, she says it right. She says, what the women did may have been careless and stupid, but right. what the man did was criminal. That's right. And that, I think, because, you know, I, I, I actually know very few women who don't have a story. Yeah. In fact, I was at a panel years ago, a couple years ago, and I asked the audience, who here does not have a Me Too story? And the only people that, it was an audience of 200 women and like three guys. The only people that raised their hands were the men. Mm-hmm. They were the only ones in the room who didn't have a story. Mm-hmm. And where all the police reports. Yeah. You know, and, and because what we we think we did in that moment was stupid, we don't want to come out and own it. Of course We're not. so embarrassed that we allowed ourselves, in quotations, yeah. To find ourselves in that position. Yeah, of course. And the last thing you want to do is relive it in gory detail in front of strangers. And in the... On the record. That's it. And in the working world, I remember this, you know, I have several stories. And I remember when you're in a male-dominated environment, you need to prove that you can hang. Yeah. Which means you put up with a metric ton of bullshit. Yeah. And that if the bullshit gets really serious, then you got to figure out what to do. But most of us just dealt. Yeah. No, I think if the roles were reversed, men would be such wussies about this stuff. <laughs> like if, if if men were groped and grabbed, you know, right? in an unwanted way or well, whistled at. It's or... when a straight man goes into a gay bar, he understands consent like that, right? <laughs> I heard a comic say that. I also heard this amazing bit um, by Amy Schumer in her latest stand-up. She's like, she's like. Oh, the pregnant one. She's, where she's, she's great with child. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Heavy with calf, as my friend would say. But yeah. she's like, I love these millennials. They're like, hey, um, older women. Like, like this sexual harassment thing, like, did that happen to you? And we're like, yeah. And they're like, well, do you want to do something about it? We're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's do it. Like, that's, I love this new generation is pushing us so far forward. I have two millennials at home, and thank God, you know, I mean, 
you know, I think that it forces you to think about what happens when the world changes radically or, mm. or, or the world changes before your eyes. You know, you can go in one of two directions. Yeah. You can adjust your thinking and behavior. Or you can go back to when it was a great time. The golden era. The golden era, make America great again, you know, to a time that never really existed. Yeah. And that's just human nature, to go in one of those two directions. And change, you know, I always say, we love to talk about change and embracing change and welcoming change, but that the only people in this world who really embrace change are wet babies. (laughs) 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 Right? They're the only ones who want change. Most of us are creatures of habit, and we think we're right. And if you tell me I got to get out of my car Mm. and ride mass transit, you know, I'm going to say, yeah, we got to do that, but I'm not going to do it tomorrow. If you say to me, we need to build housing in the Bay Area because people can't afford to live and work here, and it's going to become a community just of, of wealthy people. You know, you say, yeah, I agree with that until it comes time to build an apartment complex in your neighborhood. Not in my backyard. And I work with a company that is in the mental health business, and they they build mental health facilities around California. And people talk a great game about how we have to help. We don't have enough mental health resources. It's about time we recognize this. You know, we, this was taboo, blah, blah, blah. Until it comes time to open a facility in their community. Yep. Always, because the property values suffer, and what does that mean for our streets? And- our schools and our kids are going to be hurt and all that. And yeah. it's like, you know, forget the data. Yeah. Forget the fact that in, in most of the cases, these things are a boon to property values because they provide oh, stable employment right. in a community right. and, oh, yeah, and healthcare facilities. But, uh, you know, people just become their worst selves when – when they're asked to change. Yeah, yeah. And, and anyway. Well, okay, so that, so I want to close with this question. Yeah. In the news cycle right now, and this will take a couple of weeks to post, so I'm sure by the time this goes live, this will be old news, but Biden. Yeah. And his video. Yeah. And what do you make of, if you can comment, what do you make of his reaction strategy video, the whole thing? It's too slow. I mean, the thing is, wow. I think this was a test for Biden. I don't. I do not believe that Biden's a creep. I think Biden's a genuinely good guy. Yeah. And if he's the nominee of the Democratic Party, I will enthusiastically go out and work for him. Mm-hmm. But this was a test of how a 77-year-old man, how what kind of alacrity he has in the world of 2020 politics. Oh. And he was too slow. And, you know, the responses came out in, and I used to work in politics, so I watched this stuff really closely. You know, first there was silence. Then there was the expected list of 50 women who say, you know, who were character witnesses, who say we he's such Joe a great, Biden. Yeah, 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 you know. Do you hear what Gloria Steinem said? She's no. like, he lo- Biden would hug a lamppost. Right. Like, can we focus on the pussy grabber? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my, my, what my wife said. This is exactly what my wife said. And Trump, you know, he doesn't deny it, for God's no. sake. But, but, you know, we're living in a very, very uh, real-time world. And his response was not in real time. And that mm. allowed this story, I think, to get some traction. Mm. And finally, his video, which I think was helpful. And I see today he was giving a speech where he, like, asked the audience's permission before he could hug the guy who introduced him. You know, so a little humor yeah. kind of goes a long way. But... He was right to acknowledge that, oh, well, let me step back a minute. If he were faster, the following things would have happened. Mm. Um, One, we would have known a lot sooner that the accuser had ties to Bernie Sanders. Right? I missed that. I mean, it's politics. It's not fair, but It is what it is. She's tied to Bernie Sanders. And then somebody posted like a dozen pictures of Bernie Sanders with his hands on her, hugging her, hands on her shoulders, posing with her in pictures. The character witnesses certainly would have would have come out. He, I think, could have. He finally did come around to this, which is like, hey, I didn't mean it, but it's not what I mean; it's what you feel. Yeah. And I thought the smartest words in this whole thing were from Nancy Pelosi. Mm. Nancy Pelosi said, "You know, I have the bad cough rule. Well, I pretend that I have a bad cough, and I pretend that you have a bad cough, and we don't get any closer than that." You know, I'll shake your hand, but I'm gonna we're gonna behave as if we both have bad coughs. Mm. And she said, "That's what he's got to start doing." Yeah, yeah. And you know, the guy can say, "I'm gonna change my behavior," and then change it. Yeah. And the issue goes away. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. In fact, I keep talking to people and I'm curious to hear what you think about this. The rules have changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. 15 years ago, we all wanted to get Biden, you know, or, or, or it was not even a thing. Right. And all of the social things, all the norms, like my dad, rest in peace, he was a liability his entire career because that's how people behaved. Right. It's changed overnight. Mm-hmm. Don Lemon did a clip on CNN saying Democrats need to stop freaking apologizing and yeah. start focusing on policy. Right. So what I want to know is, A, Things are changing so quickly. Almost every man in power anywhere has got some explaining to do, I'm sure, in some place in his career. Right. Does that mean everybody has to keep apologizing? No. You have to change your behavior. Yeah. I fair mean, enough. It, it's like I can't go back and undo things that I that I did in my life, especially when norms were different. Yeah, right. You know, like nowadays, I find myself, you know, when I see people, especially women who I haven't seen in a long time, I'll ask them if I can hug them. You know, whereas before, I would just go up and give yeah. them a hug. Well, yeah. so when you ask, you learn a lot of stuff. So last yeah, night... Yeah, what have you learned? Well, last night, I had I had somebody come in, and it's somebody I've known for a long, long time. And, you know, I said, are we, you know, are we in the hugging, in the hugging zone? And she said, yeah, you can give me a hug. So I gave her a hug. I, I had another person who I know from, from politics, and I saw her, and I asked her the same question, and she said, I'm not really a hugger. Good for her. And I said, thank you for telling me that. Because <laughs> so if I had come up and put my arms around you, and it would have... It would have been bad. It would have been awkward. And you know what's funny is I'm a big hugger. I'm a very touchy person. And mm-hmm. even I have to keep that in check because I can see a micro expression flash mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. when I've just gotten into somebody's space and they don't like it. Mm-hmm. And I get away with it because I have the privilege of being female. Right. But I think we all could... I think we're just... You could argue that we're becoming too PC for our own good, or you could just argue that we're finally listening to each other yeah. and each other's preferences, and we're learning the hard way that we got to respect them. Yeah, I, I don't think this is a question. I mean, I think, yes, there are pretty obvious cases where things are too PC yeah. or, you yeah. know, is Pete, Pete Buttigieg gay enough? I mean, right. really, are people really asking that question? <laughs> You know that that's that's a that's that is a first world democracy I mean. kind of problem to have. <laughs> but um, I agree with you. I'm an optimist. I'm a Democrat, and I I think that this kind of ultimately makes this will make the ultimate candidate kind of stronger. Yeah, the yeah, shakeout. Yeah. That is, if we don't kill him or her first. I mean, honestly, honestly, there's so much I could say about politics. But I think the the last question I want to ask you is for people listening who maybe they're not the CIO of Mastercard, but they're managing their own careers and whatever sector form that takes, what can the average person learn from all of your experiences, all your knowledge about making it right Mm. when the shit hits the fan? You have to be willing to confront the facts. And if the facts show that you could have done something about this before, you can't go back and undo that, but you can do something about it now. Yeah. Inevitably, in a crisis, somebody gets hurt, either insulted or physically hurt or financially hurt. You have to acknowledge that that person's pain is real. You can't diminish it or make fun of it because you'll have no credibility. Or put it into context. Or put it into context. Saying it's only one out of 100,000 or whatever. That oil will dissipate over time. It's a very small amount of oil for a very large Gulf of Mexico. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, but, but that's not really the point. Yeah. So you have to be really honest with yourself. And I think there's a couple other things. You have to give yourself a break because we're human and we make mistakes. That's right. And I still feel like even with social media and even with the divide that we have in this country, that Americans are basically people who want to forgive yeah. and give second chances. Yeah, we love a comeback story in We this love country. a comeback. We love to knock them down and then and build them back build them up right again. right back up. And, you know, I also feel like you have to act from a set of values, you mm-hmm. know, a set of core values, um, and let that show through. Amen. You know, wear them on your sleeve. If you are... You know, if you're a company that is really customer focused or, you know, stands 150% behind its products, I should not be hearing from your lawyer about why what you did (laughs) was not wrong. Right, right. You know, so 
your values have to show, have to kind of show through. I love that. I love values driven everything. And it sounds so like I interviewed Joel Peterson from JetBlue, who's just, and he's a Hoover Institution uh, guy and just a really old school, yeah. delightful human being. Yeah. And his, some of the things he says sound sort of folksy and cute in the context of today's world they sound wholesome yeah precious maybe, precious. Even, maybe yeah, a little precious and, and like what you know what does that mean but words like integrity yeah. kindness that shit is important i don't care if it's 2020 or right. 2047 right the values that we all need to do the work to figure out who are we and what do we stand for that's what happens in a crisis is you have to figure out you're making, are you going to live them or not that's right and and so you know, I look at a crisis through a lot of different lenses. One is, you know, it's it's that moment of great peril. Mm. It's that moment of great opportunity. Ugh, love that. But most importantly, it's it's a moment when you have to make decisions. Mm. You do not have the luxury of not making decisions, and mm. most of those are going to be with imperfect information. And you have to act from a set of of values. Mm. You know, the values that made your organization distinctive or great or profitable in the first place. Those have to those have to come through, and sometimes that's pretty risky. Yeah, you know, right now there's a great study in contrast. If you look at Johnson and Johnson, mm. so Johnson and Johnson is like a classic case study for how it handled the Tylenol crisis oh, in yeah. 1982. Right, that was God. That was so huge. I remember that. Right, and there's a really interesting backstory that us crisis geeks read about. That it wasn't all angelic behavior. There were a lot of reasons why they did it, but they are rightly held up as a company who said, "Okay, well, look, we got a dangerous product. We're going to pull it off the market. You can't buy it." I mean, if you remember, yeah, you yeah. literally could well, not buy. Well, that's why that was such a big deal, is right. they had the balls to literally right. pull every single product but off But a lot shelves. of people now are contrasting that with the Johnson & Johnson of today that is getting slapped with multi-billion dollar judgments for talc because of the link between talc and asbestos and cancer. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And so... You know, there's some people who say that Johnson & Johnson now is doing a very litigation-driven communication strategy. Oh, interesting. Whereas if in 1982 they were litigation-driven, they would have said, you know, it's only a small number of people have been killed yeah. with cyanide. And, oh, you know, God, yes. we'll, you know we'll, we'll kind of fix that problem ad hoc. Wow. It's so interesting that even in the company that is the case study, mm-hmm. if enough years go by and the lawyers mm-hmm. start to rise up in the the decision chain, you see that they just lose the wisdom of what they learned. In or the financial too. pressures are very different now pressures. in public companies. You know, yeah. Johnson Johnson has they're held up as an example because they have this credo that puts patients first mm. and caregivers second and profits third. Wow. You know that, and it, it is when you go to their headquarters in New Jersey, it is literally etched in stone. There is a stone wall wow. with this with the Johnson Johnson credo on it. Yeah, and people know it; they live it, and and so this is what's causing this kind of crisis of of identity. It's like, is this the same company that did Tylenol? Yeah, involved in the if you look at what's going on with, yeah. with talc, the publicly traded company thing, though, because I remember you know years of PR doing lots of work with public traded companies. And I think unless you're in it or have been exposed to it, you have no idea how much pressure, if you're a company that manages quarter to quarter and you bow down like Wall Street is your divining rod, the amount of pressure and what people are willing to do to get through an earnings cycle. And I don't even mean like it's it's illegal or it's unethical. No, it's, it's just hard. everybody grinds themselves to nothing. And it's even worse it if you're owned by private equity. I can only imagine. You Is know, that true? I didn't know that. I talk to people, you know, look, at least in the world of publicly traded companies, there are ways of doing things, right, with reporting right. and right. earnings and so on. But, you know, private equity, man, they typically want to smash the the employment infrastructure, right, and just get results fast. And, I, you know, I talk to people in that world, and they, it's like much more pressure. Wow. Even more pressure than if answering to the to the shareholders. Yeah, because the share because on those earnings calls you can be like, these are the three metrics I'm gonna give you mm-hmm. by which you judge me this quarter. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's this the obvious ones, but we're we're really excited about this one metric and I'm gonna put that out there. And then the questions tend to be around whatever. I would imagine private equity, they're like cut the bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> what about I got twenty minutes, you know? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. 
Interesting. Okay, well, it's been such a pleasure. Oh, I'm you are so pleased. I was so pleased you asked me to do this. Thank I'm you. I'm so thrilled, and thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Awesome. I loved that conversation. Most of all, I loved seeing crisis communication through the lens of problem solving. It's one thing to craft a perfect apology, but it's another thing altogether to have the courage, heart, and moral strength to actually fix the problem and communicate consistently and honestly throughout the entire process. Also, it's important to note in the context of this podcast interview, Larry Kamer speaks for himself, not for his clients. And as always, if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, I offer a recap of what was covered so you can easily find it when you need it. If this sounds appealing to you, head over to bronwyncommunications.com and sign up. Until next time, shine on you crazy diamonds. <laughs>